Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We're talking this afternoon, Dave and I, about the um, Brit Awards uh, in 1992 at the Hammersmith Odeon, and we could only remember one moment from this, which you can imagine what it would have been, which is that the KLF came on uh, with extreme noise terror and machine-gunned the audience so deafeningly that the composer George Sir George Salty, who was sitting right in front of us, leapt to his feet, poor old boy, stuck his fingers in his ears and ran for the exit. If he'd got to the exit, which he may well have done, he would have seen, of course, a dead sheep that had been kindly <laughs> deposited by the group outside. And it made me think, this is a fantastic story. It's a fantastic, unique story. This is a group with a, a, a catalogue of absolutely extraordinary, really inventive pop singles and a, a, an equally extraordinary rack of, uh, of uh, art terrorist moments. And uh, this story has been uh, wonderfully told by uh, the author of this book, The KLF, Chaos, Magic and the Band That Burnt a Million Pounds. Uh, so successful ten years ago that it's now been, uh, been put out in its uh, tenth anniversary edition with, uh, uh, with uh, extra material. And its author is the great John Higgs. So please welcome John. Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. So, John, you were presumably always, um, you know, interested in the, in the KLF and that story. Was it was at, at the time? Or was that... Not at the time, actually. I was more of a rock guy. Yeah. You know, I wasn't... The dance music passed me by slightly. Yeah. Uh, it was just... I remember... I still remember that weekend when you got the paper at the weekend, got the Observer, and you opened the magazine, and there was a story in there by the journalist Jim Reed about how Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corty had gone up to the island of Jura with a suitcase full of 50-pound notes, uh, totaling a million pounds. Uh, and in the middle of the night, they'd found this deserted boathouse that just happened to have a fireplace at the end. And they'd spent a couple of hours setting fire to this money and burning all the money. And, you know, 
there was something about reading this, and I just thought, well, I'm going to have to keep this article because it didn't make any sense to me. It didn't compute. You know, normally most subjects, you get your head around them, you can move on. But because this was just so totally inconceivable to me, it was so taboo, but it was, it was more than that. It was just so nuts. Um, I couldn't move on. I couldn't sort of get past it. I had to sort of... It kept ticking away at the back of my mind for about the next 17 years, you know. It's always the things that make no sense that are the clues that your, you know, your worldview is limited. Yeah, the music press played, played a big part in that story because, you know, as a music journalist, writing about music is very hard. Yeah. Uh, music is abstract, it's difficult to pin it down. But writing about stories about music is an yeah. absolute gift and they were the most phenomenal uh, gift in that department. Oh, Just yeah. quickly, we must, we must talk a little bit about... Um, we've got some slides running behind us for anyone listening to the podcast. And uh, just a bit of background on, on Bill Drummond. And there's Bill in uh, Big in Japan with uh, Ian Brody and Holly Johnson and Jane Casey on the left there. So what, he started off in theatre and then got into music. What were his ambitions at the time? Well, Bill Drummond, he yeah. was... Um, I guess he's always been on the uh, what Julian Cope would call the art trip. Julian Cope once memorably said never fall for the art trip, right? And I think that was a bit of a dig at Bill, you know. Uh, art is one thing, but the art trip, yeah. that's, that's, that's no, nothing. Uh, he'd been to art school. He'd, um, he'd been working at the Everyman in Liverpool doing uh, sets. Uh, and this, this strange, uh, mad-eyebrowed um, ball of enthusiasm called Ken Campbell came into... Liverpool and announced he was going to put on the, this, this eight-hour epic of the, the greatest conspiracy story ever told um, in basically this grotty old deserted warehouse down Matthew Street, uh, which only had like one toilet, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and it, Bill got the job of making the sets, uh, but they had to be of a size that he could get them up this tiny staircase. So he had to create sets for a worldwide conspiracy epic on a tiny little sort of scale. Uh, and Perfect training for what was, was the, to come. Actually, it, was, it? it was when you have such extreme constraints that, you know, genius flourishes. And then that's when you have the brilliant ideas. And that's why we're still talk, talking about this Illuminatus play yeah. so many years later, because the people who were part of it and the people who were sort of um, changed by exposure to Ken Campbell... Um, I've never been the same since. That Ken had this notion that it's only things that are impossible that are worth doing. Don't waste your time on anything that's possible. You know, it's the impossible that you want to be doing. And Bill learned from him. You know, his 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 brief was: uh, is it is it a heroic? Is it heroic? That was his brief for all the sets. And he painted these words, is it heroic, in big letters on the wall. And he sort of got to work. Uh, and he's, that's kind of shaped him ever since. He was a kind of strategist from the start, wasn't he? I was going to just ask you briefly about his time when he managed both Echo and the Bunnymen. Mm. The teardrop explodes. There's a bit in the book where he says that um, his idea of a group is some people who get together and they have three or four hit singles, uh, blaze of glory, and then they split up. Go yeah. something else. Whereas both these groups actually really thought they were in, in it for the long haul, and well, one of them clearly was very successfully actually. So, what did he what did he bring to those two groups? Do you think that, that, uh, that 
the... uh, he, he initially recognised the brilliance of them. The sort of the, the real, um, you know, visionary side of um, why they're remembered, why they're so special. Um, he was not the guy to set them on uh, a decades-long career. You know, as you say, he thought there was something selling out about like you know making an album. You know, really, you should make a brilliant single and split up. That was his idea. This wasn't what Echo and the Bunnymen wanted to do at all. And hence, you know, they, they moved on and they signed to a major label and, uh, and, and are still with us today. And they're announcing their next tour for next year, you know, this, this very day. Um, so he probably wasn't the ideal manager, but he was the ideal myth creator for them. Yeah. You know, he could really... The image we have of Echo and the Bunnymen now is <coughs> grandeur. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, slightly transcendent. It's slightly more than, you know, what a band should be. Uh, and that's how Bill saw There's them. a wonderful moment where he wants both groups to play simultaneously, I think, in his yeah. favourite places. What was that? About? He, he, Two very important places from his childhood that seemed uh, just uh, ripe with meaning for him. One was just Iceland, which he visited uh, when he was young, I think. Um, and it was the... It was, it was the epic sort of scale of the Icelandic sort of uh, landscape that he associated with Echo and the Bunnymen. Where they eventually did help them sleep, didn't they? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it fits them perfectly. But also he wanted uh, Julian Cope to play in Papua New Guinea with The Teardrop Explodes because he'd heard stories as a kid about his uncle was like eaten by... Uh, he was a missionary. He'd gone to Papua New Guinea and was eaten or something like that. So uncle, for him... He was twist these two groups into his own vision. You know, fiery, you know, wild, um, uh, atavistic sort of place, uh, which is exactly how he saw Julian Cope at that time. So if he thought if he could put Echo and the Bunnymen in Iceland and the teardrop explodes in Papua New Guinea at the same time, then something would happen. Something he didn't know what, happen. but it would certainly happen yeah. and it would ripple through the world yeah. and it would probably come up uh, in Matthew Street. Uh, in Liverpool, in, in between, which is where Eric's was, which is where the cavern was. Um, and his idea was, at the time that both bands were playing, he would stand on the manhole cover in Matthew Street and see what would happen. <laughs> most, most band managers, they ain't thinking like this. No. This is not... And fortunately, or unfortunately, anyone who can tell Julian Cope to go and play a gig in Papua New Guinea when he doesn't want to, you know. It's, Just so their manager could stand yeah. on, a, on a manhole. So of. it never happened, yeah. you know. So no. at, at, at the same time, Neck only when he did play in Iceland, yeah, yeah. and he did go and stand on the manhole cover. And also for his 60th birthday, he went back and stood on that manhole cover for 17 hours. <laughs> This is, this is Bill, this is Bill Drummond, you know. It's um, ain't not many people like him. No, there aren't. No. Yeah. So tell us a bit about Jimmy. We were looking at a picture here of, um, of the group Brilliant that Jimmy was in, and that's him on the top right there. And that, yeah. on the right is a, is a picture of a very famous poster that he, he did that Athena, I think, marketed of the Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. He was very young when he did this uh, Lord of the Rings poster, and everyone of certainly my age will recognise it. It was a massive hit. It was hugely successful. It was this. Uh, there, was, there used to be a shop chain called Athena for any younger listeners that would sell posters. And this look, this drawing of Lord and Rings was a massive, massive sort of hit. Uh, but Jimmy, he got into music as he was in this band, Brilliant with Youth, uh, which um, Bill signed. 
and they they did an album and they did the album with um, uh, Whoopi Waterman uh, and it, it did nothing but Jimmy and Bill were able to sort of watch Pete Waterman just as he was moving into his hit factory sort of stage and they sort of learned so much about the um, I guess sort of blatant um, attempts to make hit records that Pete Waterman sort of represented, certainly in, in the 80s, um, that it's it kind of, even though they were coming, you know, from a very sort of post-punk, left-field, indie sort of way, to see what Pete Waterman could do was kind of in, inspiring. And they kind of both left the music industry um, after, you know, uh, Brilliant ne never took off and Bill was going to go away and write a book and... Um, he, he, he turned 33, they were too old, they were too old to be in the band. Uh, and they were going to give it all up. And then the notion that Jimmy had bought a sampler was sort of in, in Bill's head. And he'd been listening to School E.D. And, um, you know, hip-hop was just sort of starting. Um, and I think it was 1987, New Year's Day, he just sort of phoned him up and said... Um, we should like form a band and we should call ourselves the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. Right? <laughs> Which is an odd, I remember hearing that, that name on the radio, Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, and it just leapt out. I was like, what is that? You know, those words like justified, you know, was that ancient? You didn't hear them on Radio One, they weren't pop music words. This was coming from somewhere very, very different. And this was coming from um, oh, a, a series of books called The Illuminatus Trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea, which is what Ken Campbell had been adapting in Liverpool. So there's this, re this really sort of underground mythology that they were tapping into where the justified ancients of Moo Moo represented the forces of chaos who are at war against the music yeah, industry. I was, I was going to ask you about that, because I, 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 there, there are three or four things I, I made a note of here. Robert Anton Wilson's mm. uh, the historical illuminatus, uh, Alan Moore, um, a picture also we're looking at of the, uh, of the, the Greek goddess uh, Eris, the Greek goddess of chaos. And now I think they're quite divisive, these things, because people either really like this kind of literature or they find it really, really confusing and, and slightly off-putting. And I, I must admit, I'm in the latter camp. I, I've never read any of this stuff. And I, I'd like to know what, 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 uh, what you know, Bill and Jimmy got out of reading these books that, that was part of the strategy of the group. What yeah. They, what, what, how were they involved? It's, it's a very good question. I think it... Um, the... Uh, to, to boil this this sort of rich you know, world of literature down into uh, a simple notion. There was, there was uh, it, you know, it, the idea was that, you know, religions, belief systems, ideologies were all focused on order, on the order in the world. People would look at the world and they would see like something elegant and, and beautiful and go, look at, look at the order in the universe. Clearly, there must be, you know, some divine force behind it. We should start a religion and worship the divine side of it. Uh, this, all this literature comes from the idea that, yeah, really, the universe is just chaos. It's just a bubbling, seething mass of chaos, and we project onto it what we, what we really want. And if anybody wanted to form a religion focused on 
something that was undeniably present, a concept that was undeniably present in the, in the universe. Then it's chaos. Then it's the Greek goddess Eris, the goddess of discord and, and, and disharmony and, and things like that. So this, these, you know, these aren't your normal ideas to feed into late 80s pop music by a long shot. But they are... Was it obvious that that stuff was in there? Were they talking about that in interviews? They, I guess they were. It was, it, was, it was blatantly obvious, but at the same time, because no one was looking for it, no one was really commenting on it. Um, it might be known that, okay, the name Justified Ancient Movement came from these books and stuff, but because no one was reading those books, it didn't sort of really sort of make any sense. But the, the sense that they were in some way against the music industry... I think that came across quite quite clear uh, that, that they were in some way um, not trying to not trying to destroy it, but 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 um, trying to fight it, subvert it, it, subvert it. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Just my age to move, I'm trying to remember how they were sold because their press officer, a guy called Mick Houghton, was an old pal of ours, and I must have been the editor of Q, I think, at the time. I'm trying to think what he would have been saying on the phone. To, to try and get across what this group were all about? Because the very early records, weren't they masquerading as kind of Scottish dockers or something? Yeah. I can remember they, were in, they had some kind of persona that they, uh, that they, they, they occupied. Yeah, absolutely. They claimed to be so Clydeside so dockers. Yeah. Uh, King Boy D and Rockman Rock. And those first albums, they're kind of putting on a bit of an accent, you know. Yeah. And Mick Horton, God bless him, thought, yeah... I best tell people it's Bill Drummond and Jimmy Courtney because no one's going to be remotely interested, you know, otherwise. But they were, they were known enough around this, particularly Bill and from managing Echo and the Bunny Men and his time at Warner's and, and things like that. They were industry enough names. So he, he made it very clear, you know, who they were. Um, 
And also brilliant publicity things. The, 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 the ABBA incident, you'll have to explain, because there was a yeah. court case with ABBA, wasn't there? There was, because... I, a lot of this, this stuff about um, AI in music has reminded me of those, of, of those times. Because at the, at the time, sampling was new, and the sense of what was you know, reasonable, you know, what was legal, what, was, what it should be used for, was very much up in the air. It was, it was very sort of odd. It reminds me of now when people are just like, you know, uh, using an AI plugin to change their voice into The weekend, or, you know, to Drake or, or, or something like that. And they put it on YouTube and people are appalled because how, how dare you do that sort of stuff. The, the, the KLF, they were taking, they were sampling huge chunks of the Beatles and ABBA, right? Not just to get, a, you know, a beat or a, a, a sound, back, but because they were the Beatles and ABBA, they were sort of like claiming them and subverting them and using them. And, you know, the fact that the lawyers came down so heavily on that first Jams album, it's really not surprising if you listen to it. There's, it's not like they sampled a bit of ABBA. It's basically they played the record oh, and no, then shouted over it occasionally. Yeah. That was, that's closer <laughs> to, to sort of what it was. And um, when they were shut down, Bill had this notion that if only they could explain to ABBA, artist to artist, what they're trying they, they, to do. They'd be bound to understand. They, of course they do. And we can tell them ABBA about the chaos theory fine. too. Yeah, that wouldn't be a problem. So there was this, this road trip where they got the ferry over to Sweden and they were trying to find ABBA. ABBA weren't in Sweden at, at the time. And uh, I think James Brown from NME sort of went with them. And he, was, he sort of added to the story by making a lot of stuff up, like the stuff about them being chased by a farmer with a shotgun and all this sort of stuff. Just totally sort of made Perfect. It. But there's enough in there that actually happened that, um, like, they played their only gig as the Justified Ancients Movement on the ferry were paid one Toblerone. That's right. <laughs> perfect. It's absolutely perfect. You know that has to be true. No one makes that up, you know, absolutely. Um, and they, they'd found a prostitute that they said looked like Agnesa. She didn't. And they, they, they got a photo with her, take it. It was just, it was a sort of, uh, it, was, it sort of framed the way they were seen as sort of master media manipulators because that story would follow them, you know. Yeah. You see what they're up to, you could easily get, you know, 1,500 words out of that and they'll be great, you know. They're much easier to write about than, you know, 808 States or, or something like that. The Pale they, Fountains. They, they were, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. they were um, a journalist's dream in some... And even though a lot of the early jam single, yeah, they don't have a lot of supporters now. They were written about in such a way because because of just, just how they acted, how Bill and Jimmy sort of acted. Uh, became but actually the point that the group themselves was somehow more important at that time than the music they made, the whole concept of them was what people Poss were excited about. Possibly, but it's slightly overshadowed by how good they became yeah. as we got into the early 90s and they dropped their attempts at you know, uh, shouty Scottish hip-hop and got into... Well, I wanted, yeah, I wanted uh, to mention the, the Time Lords record. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, it struck me that... Uh, the, the Doctor Who is actually at a bit of a low point. It was a brilliant way of, of connecting with something that was part of the kind of cultural DNA mm. of the audience that they really wanted to appeal to. But actually, I think, 
I think the BBC Broadcast was trying to get rid of it at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So they may well have been responsible for, for its uh, long, longevity and for, for keeping it going. The, the moment they dropped it was really interesting because um, yeah, the BBC had been talking about Doctor Who on the grounds that, look, it's shit and we should get rid of it. Right. And um, there was a campaign and it came back. They, they weren't quite prepared for how many people wanted it back. But when it came back, it still wasn't the best. And they thought, we'll get a new Doctor Who. And they, they got um, Sylvester McCoy. And the first series was very, you know, it had Ken Dodd in it. It, was, you know, it wasn't the sort of serious sci-fi that many people were expecting. Uh, you know, uh, Bonnie Langford was in it. And it was quite a pantomime sort of elements. And um, there was a new script editor about to sort of take over, but he hadn't put his, his stamp on it. And in the public's estimation, it was as naff of it as it's ever been. I don't think there's any been, you know, the, the great thing about Doctor Who is it's magnificent, but it's like awful at the same time. It's, 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 uh, it's very, it can be very camp, it can be ludicrous, and it's very easy to sort of fall out of favour. And it, at that point, you weren't getting people supporting it. And that was the moment that they came out with this, um, I want to say novelty record, but... I love it. You know, it's not like no- it's sort of novelty records. Yeah. I think Pete Perfidi's called it the only novelty record it's okay to love or, so, or, <laughs> or, so, or something like that about Doctor Who. And the moment, that, um, or the moment Doctor Who came back after this, it was brilliant again. It suddenly found its mojo and there was a new companion called Ace and uh, uh, had a real sense of mystery to it again that it all, had all been lost. But yeah, this, this came out at the sort of the lowest ebb for Doctor Who, and, and yeah, either they misread, you know, culture, or they, they really get it on a deeper level. It's, it's yeah, it's fascinating. It's genius, thing. absolute genius, because mm. everybody connected, everyone could understand it, you know. But the phase after this was the kind of KLF phase. And it's interesting, you make the point in the book that kind of rave culture just mm. arrived, and uh, the main difference between that and, and rock music, in a way, was that rock music is an audience looking at a stage, and rave culture is an audience looking at an audience. Yeah. You know, I can remember I can remember driving down to Glastonbury around this time and giving a load of hitchhikers a lift because I had an empty car. And I asked them what they were going to see, and they said they didn't know they didn't know who was on. They were going mm. to see uh, Spiral Tribe, uh-huh. who were a kind of sound system just being on with a generator, and they had no idea and no interest at all any of the groups and any of the personalities. It was a real moment for me. I thought, my God, things are really are changing. That's extraordinary. It's so different from, like, the Led Zeppelin, like, golden god sort of thing, where the band on stage, they make this incredible noise and they project it out at the audience and the audience are kind of like this parabolic mirror that sort of take it and reflect it back to glorify the people on stage and they become you know like 10 feet tall you know amazing sort of heroes and stuff like that, that was the idea of you know led zeppelin and, and, and bands like that uh with rave music it, the band the, it was just the music was just reflected into the audience who reflected to the rest of the audience and it was to to sort of make the audience like many inches taller than they had been when they came it was made to make them sort of these wonderful sort of divine beings um and they were looking at each other they're not all, this this is before the superstar djs sort of era where people would look up at you know the guy playing records or something like that it was it sort of wasn't that at all and 
they, um, so why did the KLF adopt that? It's quite interesting because in some ways they were quite old for, for yeah, that kind of they, old they movement, were, but they saw the value of it, didn't they? They, they, they were, they were sort of but DIY punk ethic too, to some extent. Did, they were. They're still of an age where if they could, they could get some ease and they went along uh, and they took the ease and they weren't sure if anything was happening. And uh, Bill turned to Jimmy and goes, "I wanted to ask, is anything happening?" But the sentence that came out was, what time is love? <laughs> At that point, they knew it was working and they, were, they knew that this, this was the music they wanted to make. Yeah. This, was, this, was the, uh, uh, this was now, you know. Yeah, this, yeah, was, yeah. this was fresh. And so they, they changed their name to the KLF because it was, you know, it, again, it, it's, it wasn't about the, the heroes on stage. It was as anonymous as, as you could possibly be. It was just sort of three letters. So there are a lot of stories about what they may or may not mean, those letters. Uh, but at the time, it, it was just very sort of bold and you know, industrial-type sort of design and very simple and clear and, um, uh, and brilliant. They, yeah. d- they just got that stage where that, that, especially when they got to those stadium house singles a, a little bit later, the uh, 3AM Eternal, uh, Last Train to Transcentral, uh, Justified and Ancients. These are just phenomenal records. And if yeah. you play them now, they're so of the time, but they also transcend it completely. They still sound brilliant. And they sound brilliant to, like, you know, a, a three-year-old kid, and they sound brilliant to a nine-year-old woman. They're, 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 they just transcend everything. Uh, it was just this really glorious moment, and suddenly the KLF were the best-selling singles band in the world, having number one after number one after number one. And wrote, and wrote the manual, didn't they? How yeah. to have a number one the easy way. I'm trying to think of, 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 of any of the salient points they made in that. Well, give us an example. Oh, kind of great. It's, it's really about how the music industry operated at a, pers- a specific like six month period in the late 1980s. All the advice about you know, hiring a sampler and hiring a studio. And, uh, the first thing was to go to the bank manager and borrow like 20,000 pounds to you know, pay for pluggers for ratings. So it's, in some ways it's like completely um, irrelevant now. But a lot of the advice uh, about the actual song um, still stands up it's still it's the obvious sort of stuff it's it's the start with the chorus and use that title and you know build on it and you know it's, 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 it's backfired it's, slightly didn't it there, it there was did seem cynical that, that they were yeah cynical manipulators rather than these kind of uh, chaos crusaders and freewheeling kind absolutely of. i think the intention as they saw it was it was like that um, the sniffing glue punk fanzine that I had on the back page, here's three chords, now form a band. It was just giving people, you know, what they needed to have a number one. As they saw it, it was the f- first time in history where anyone, anyone could have a number one. Because they could do it. Anyone could do it. So they were sort of trying to share that. But it was seen as this sort of, ah, clever, clever sort of, arch manipulatory sort of thing again uh, and so a lot of what they have done is always perceived as um, scams yeah. like or pranks or something like that which they hate which they really hate because they are genuine expressions of of them as artists well what we're looking at now is a picture that we also thought by many as being a scam or a prank which is a picture of a line of people I think on the island of Jura yeah. most of them in yellow robes hooded robes uh, taking part in a ritual just remind us again 
what was happening there? It was the rights of Mew? It was the rights of Mew. It was Midsummer. It was Midsummer's Evening, 1991. And they just invited a whole bunch of people from the, the record industry and didn't tell them where they... They were just like, bring your passport. And didn't tell them where they were going. Uh, and they got on a plane and they flew up to Scotland, got on a little plane and got on a ferry. And they arrived at the Isle of Jura and... Uh, Bill was in like a customs officer outfit on a, a stamp in everyone's passport with like the pyramid blaster logo, which I think is illegal, but he was sort of, you know, sort of stamping away. And they were sort of marched across the island. They were given these robes. They were given a lot of uh, MDMA. They were marched across the, the island. Compulsory. Made to take it. To this wicker man. It's a giant wicker man there. And... Um, a sound system and you know Jimmy was playing all this uh, this this deep sort of rave music and Bill who I think that's Bill at the front in the white with the big oh, horn, with a huge coming, horn out coming out where his face should be started talking in tongues <laughs> giving all this glossalia I think it's called this 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 incomprehensible sort of language but proclaiming in times of the music and a lot of the journalists there have never quite been the same since. <laughs> there's, you know, there's accounts of people who've moved back to Jura and had children. Um, in Chris Atkins' film, that documentary, he speaks to a woman who, actually, I think she was the researcher on the Steve Wright show. <laughs> and she was invited along. And now she's, I think she's living on Jura with a child whose initials are KLF. No. Yeah. She lives in a cave yeah. in some distant mountain peak. I don't, yeah, not quite, but, uh, but it's not like they had a record to promote. There wasn't any reason for it, other than, like, it, it's midsummer, and we should, you know, we should sort of, sort of do something like that. And the, big, the big hit around this time, which we ought to mention, I think, was uh, Justifying an Ancient with Tammy Wynette. And I, I was thinking about that today, because, you know, when the Pet Shop Boys got in touch with Dusty Springfield and said, would you like to come out? And work with us, we're a kind of electronic duo, etc. etc. What they were offering her was a you know a very uh, very conventional song in some ways, yeah. which she could understand. But when uh, the, the KLF got in touch with Tammy Wynette, I'm trying to imagine what how the conversation could possibly have gone and how they convinced her to do what she eventually finished up doing, which was brilliant. Yeah, it was superb. It came about uh, they were in the studio and they were working on something, it wasn't quite there. And Jimmy turned to Bill and said, what this song needs, Bill, is Tammy Wynette. <laughs> Meaning something authentic, you know, some, something true and authentic. Uh, but because Bill had, you know, been taught by Kate, Ken Campbell that if something's impossible, that's the sort of, that's what you do. He was like, okay, well, I'll get on the that's phone. That's the challenge. And, yeah. I, and within a few phone calls, he was speaking to Tammy Wynette, who was backstage at a conference in Memphis. And because of the route he'd been trying to get to her, I think it had gone through the head of WEA or something like that. She thought, oh, I, I better, better sort of take this. This is important. And so she thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll agree. This, the, I don't understand this. So you did this. go to the record company. I just imagined that they'd somehow got in touch with her and she'd be thinking, who are these people? You know? I mean, when they sent her the lyrics, you know, they are justified and they're ancient, and they drive an ice cream, ice cream van. van. God knows she what yes. she must have been. Finally! Thinking. God knows. But she was a professional, you know, and, um, and her way of singing, 
does not hit the strong 4-4 beat of dance music in any way, shape or form. Um, but fortunately, uh, Jimmy had a quantizer or, or an early piece of technology where he could take each word and sort of hit the beat. Damp, 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 damp. And they turned it into this, uh, what was, I think it was the first billboard hit for Tammy Wynette for however many years, for, for a sort of a long, long sort of time. And it really helped sort of reinvigorate her. So she was right to and take it. She went it. out and promoted, didn't she? Yeah. Fact, so was, and it had to take time off through exhaustion, she claimed. Yeah, absolutely. She, she was ill, I think, from, from having this hit all over yeah. Europe and I think in America. Uh, it, it really took it out of her. But it, it did... Um, it's, it, it's interesting, the video, it's got this scrolling thing saying, Tammy Wynette, the first woman of country, this many Grammy Awards, this many number one albums, all this stats about her. And now in the sort of post, you know, pop idol sort of world, we're used to that sort of thing. That's how people would be introduced, you know, on a, on a Simon Cowell type programme. The artists were, were sort of, introduced by their Wikipedia sort of greatest hits sort of, yeah. sort of thing. At the time, it was weird. You know, we didn't think of music like that. We, we just, it was just, that's, it was about the industry, not the song. It was just odd. It was just another of those things they did that was just weirdly ahead of its time. And we've sort of, been, that seems strange, but has now become completely normal. And then the Brits' appearance, which we were talking about uh, earlier. I'm trying to think what point they were trying to make with that, really. Apart from the fact that they were announcing that they, 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 were, they, were, they were packing it in. They, they? Yeah, well, they, I don't think they decided to exactly at that stage. But what I was talking about earlier is that they were supposed to be, you know, against the music industry, trying to subvert the music industry. The Brit Awards were basically saying, you're successful. You know, you're selling lots of records. You've made it. Come on in. Here's the keys to the kingdom. You know, they um, they won the the Brit Award for best band, but they won it jointly with Simply Red. <laughs> so, so what? Well, that hurts. So what it? the music industry was saying was, you're the best a band can be. You're as good as, good Simply, as Simply Red. Red. And uh, it's, you can take that the wrong way. Yeah. Quite, <laughs> quite, quite easy. And they, but they were asked to do a, a performance at the start. And at this point, it's an indication of, um, I don't know, whether they were going... I'm not, going wrong is, a, is the easy way to put it. But the, the uh, intense pressure they'd been in over all these years of all these, these hits and uh, things. And they had this notion, Bill had this notion that, okay, we're going to open the Brit Awards, I should get a chainsaw and chop off my hand and like, throw it into the crowd as if to reclaim the music industry for a, a greater good, like the old kings of Ulster, right? And most people, if you suggest something like that, will go, no, Bill, don't. Don't, don't do that. That's, that's not a good idea. I think you may have spoke something. But Bill and Jimmy sort of got each other. They really, they never argued. Nothing was ever had to be discussed. They, they both saw the world in the same way. They both totally agreed. And so they were both a terrible influence on each other. Because when Bill suggests that, Jimmy's all got thinking about it. Okay. And they didn't decide to chop off his hand. But they thought, we'll, we'll get a sheep and we'll dismember the sheep like live on stage with chainsaws and we'll throw the bits of the sheep into the audience 
and it will be so terrible we'll never be forgiven for it. <laughs> we will do that. But it just so We're happened... We're still talking about it now. They yeah. decided to do the performance with the grindcore band Extreme Noise Terror. Right. There weren't many grindcore bands in the Brit Awards at, at this point. This was quite a shock to people. And uh, Extreme Noise Terror happened to be hardcore vegans. And they were not having any sheep chopped up on stage with them. So they, they was, they was, it was extreme noise terror who sort of cut down all the things they, they sort of There's wanted an to do. For you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the whole thing when you had to walk past the, the sheep that was sort of dumped on, yeah. the, on the steps afterwards. This was, as far as they saw it, this was, their, all their plans had failed. Nothing had worked. That was the only thing they could sort of think to do. Well, they were having... Obviously, it's kind of a bad effect on each other, and this leads naturally to the event that we were talking about right at the beginning, which was the, you know, which defines them really, which oh. was the burning of the, the million pounds. Now, firstly, this happened. They went to Jura. They had a, a boathouse, didn't they? Only four people were there. I yes. think Bill and Jimmy. I think they're roadie Gimpo Gimpo yeah. Gimpo the roadie yeah. trustworthy uh, yeah. uh, person to authenticate what happened and I think one and a journalist Jim, or somebody a journalist called Jim Reed, Jim Reed who's, right. um, who wrote the article that yeah. I, I, I clipped in fact when I met him I got him to sign the article for me it's one of my yeah. most treasured sort of sort of things now it would be possible to think that they didn't burn the million pounds a lot of people will cling but, to that belief but, but even if it wasn't a million they certainly burned a huge amount of money, didn't they? Yeah, they, I mean... And I'm, I'd like to think it was a million. The BBC did forensic analysis on the ashes, because they took all the ashes in the suitcase and sort of brought it back, and eventually it was turned into, into this brick, and the forensic analysis came back going, yeah, these, these are all burnt £50 notes, you know, someone's burnt an, you know, an awful lot of money. Um, and, but it's, it's more people who knew them talk of them of being haunted by what they've done. Like, they've never really See, I recovered think I think that's really it. interesting. Because anybody in this room, and anybody listening, would mm. feel the same way. If you had burnt a million yeah. pounds, and these are guys with families and with children, yeah. um, and there's another element of it, which is that, which you mentioned in the book, was that, you know, if Elton John just squandered various millions by just buying flowers or gifts which or doing something stupid, which he did times. all the time, mm-hmm. nobody cared. They're just going, that's Elton John, that's his money. But to take this money and to burn it, it could have bought kidney dialysis machines. Yeah. It could have been hospital wings. It could have done something incredibly important. And on a domestic level, it could have been... The, you know, he's living with his children, who must be thinking... They, they burnt... And we must get on to the back catalogue, which yeah. they deleted and lost more money through that. But they must be... They must be haunted by it. And people say they've ch- they were changed after that event. What bastards. <laughs> what a terrible thing to do. Because with Elton John... The money that he sort of squanders, sort of sloshes around the you know economy anyway. So it, yeah. it doesn't feel bad to ne- to sort of destroy money, right? To negate it, that's a taboo. What they've done in our society is a real taboo, and it's no wonder so many people were sort of shocked and, and angry about it. And a lot of it was because. Uh, when they, after the Brit Awards, they kind of had the realisation that you can't fight the music industry. You know, whatever you do, it will absorb. You know, you know the, the songs of Kurt Cobain are like, 
covered by the Muppets these days, you know, and the, the songs of the Sex Pistols were played to the Queen at the 2012 Olympics. They become, they become absorbed into their, their heritage, you know, you can't attack it. The only thing they could do was just not to play, was to sort of walk away. This is why they then deleted their entire catalogue, which they could do because they did everything independently, uh, which would have cost them at least five million. Five million, another yes, five million. So, yeah. so, and th- this was, they had offers for film soundtracks, they had offers for advertising. Absolutely. Probably jingles, phone jingles. I mean, just, I can't imagine. They're, they're, they're very well-known songs. and they're, they're they, they were, but because they did that, it was almost like they were deleting themselves from the history of music. They were sort of removing themselves. Uh, and for a band that was so big and so massive and so successful, they almost became forgotten as they were trying to do they almost were removed from people's popular sort of memory they're a bit too strange did that really happen we're not you know we're not entirely sure so they not only removed themselves but they lost all that money as well yeah. on a personal level as well which is absolutely incredible sort of do. but they still had a million pounds that they'd made and it's like it was tainted to them it was like that was from the music industry and they didn't know what to do with it and they were trying to do art things, you know, never fall for the art trip. They were trying to sort of go down there. And that's a lot to do with why they went to Jura because, you know, if they'd have taken the million pounds and burnt it in an art gallery in London, people would have understood it on some level. They might have thought it was terrible. Like, that's terrible art. That's a terrible you know, immoral, cruel, stupid thing to do, but it's art, you know, because it's an art gallery. By going out into, you know, into the Scottish islands and this deserted sort of boathouse, it wasn't that. It wasn't just an art thing. Uh, And that made it harder to find. That made it harder for people to sort of get their heads around it uh, and and, and comprehend what they did. So they did sort of come back in... 2017 at one point and, and various little projects but do you feel that, that the whole thing is effectively over now? Well it's yes yeah, it's a good question I do think that if they hadn't burnt the money they would have succeeded in being forgotten they, they would have you know vanished from our you know, cultural maps of the, the late 20th century It's it true it's the one thing that everyone still remembers about Yeah it, but they, people especially me I couldn't get that money burning like Home, I couldn't process it. It just made no sense. It was it was awful, but it wasn't just awful. There was there was something. Have they ever admitted that they're remorseful about it? Well, I mean, they've said a lot about it. Um, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of quotes where sometimes they regret it, but sometimes they don't, and so forth. But it it sort of became. If you go back and read all their interviews, it kind of became very very clear to me that they didn't really know why they'd done it they, they'd, they'd, they'd felt a compulsion and the compulsion was so strong that they acted on it and I always say you know it's one thing to start burning a million pounds but like, to finish is, 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 is something they just felt they had to do it they didn't understand why which is why the, the book I wrote is such a strange book because I'm sort of trying to look beyond them to sort of a larger story to look at the ideas that influence them and things like to try and put it into and some it has form of context. Material. What, what, have you, what have you added to it? To oh, this, yes, the new edition, the 10th anniversary edition. The, the, the book is unchanged. The text is unchanged. But what I did was I went back 10 years later and wrote 13,000 words of footnotes 
where I look back at the book after 10 years and <laughs> try and make sense of it myself, I think. And so it's a lot of me going, yeah, this, that bit's bad. I, I'm sorry about that or, like, <laughs> or, 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 or whatever. Me trying to sort of analyse analyze the book because it's, it's an odd book in that it's got a life of its own like no other. I mean, I, I initially just wrote it and self-published it as an e-book because at that time, Kindles had been invented. And for the first time, you could put something out and people could get it, uh, which is new, right? We didn't sort of have that. Suddenly I thought, oh, I could do that KLF thing because it's, it's been in my head. I could get it out and I could move on. Right, that was my thinking. I'd get it out. Uh, not that many people interested, but I, I, could, I could do it and sort of move on. And then the book just... I don't quite know how it... it it's like a living thing. It's... Sort of, it's, it started to take off and then publishers got interested and I was picked up by an agent and then it came out in paperback and it sort of keeps selling and it just keeps selling and every year it keeps selling. And well, it's, it, it does, it's constantly selling, isn't it? It's fantastic. It, it's just pure word of mouth. Yeah. It's basically people reading it and going, oh, I've got to talk to someone about this. I'll, I'll, you must read this and book. And it's appealing now to people who don't really even know the KLF story. They're not buying it because they were KLF fans or whatever. And they're just saying, this is an absolutely extraordinary What story. I love is when it gets to like the younger generation. Yeah. People who were raised on, as I was talking about, the Simon you know, Cowell sort of yeah. uh, TV world where to be a musician, you had to sit in front of like the panel of judges and do everything right. You had to do what they expected of you. And if you did everything right, then you could progress as a musician. But to do everything right implies that, well, it's already been done. Someone's done that before. Probably doesn't need doing the, the The creative impulses behind Bill and Jimmy's work were so different yeah. to that whole X Factor pop idol sort of, sort of world that for musicians who, who grew up during that period, I think... It comes as you know a real revelation. Now this is why we're musicians. This is what we should be doing. You know these are the impulses that we need to sort of take, uh, attend, pay attention to. Well, it really is. A, it's an absolutely fantastic book, and I'm not surprised it's been selling. And it's uh, and it's selling tonight, indeed. Oh, lovely! <laughs> and, very good. Uh, and uh, John will be very happy to sign copies. So we're going to take a little break now and come back in about 15 minutes or so with uh, Ian Brody. But for the time being. John Higgs, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey.